um, and what reminds you of what your own values um, and your own heart has to teach you. So I was asked by the Spirit Rock program people, friends, and then it was put on the website to um, some time ago um, to talk a little bit about 9-11 because this is 9-12. I'd actually rather talk about 9-12, frankly. Um, thank you. Um, yeah, exactly. So, um, and I thought, well, maybe I'll do it and maybe not, but then it said I was supposed to do it, so all right, should I follow, rule, follow the rules? I don't think so. Um, but then I also started to think, as I may say, about some of the vets that I know that come, have come back. Um, and in, there's a certain way in which I feel that there's something worthy to talk about in that regard that is, um, and maybe the Dharma that we have to carry in these times. So I'll do the best I can with it. And um, Yeah, and part of me thinks we should just have a dance, you know. <laughs> because you come, you come into the temple or you go to a retreat center or some sacred place and you come in some way to be reminded of another way of being that's not the chaotic and conflictual way of being that's so much there in the news. Um, a poem from Yehuda Amakai, he says, My son smells of peace when I lean over him. It isn't just the soap. Everybody was once the child who smelled of peace. And there's some important way in coming to the temple um, that we need to be reminded of another possibility in ourselves as human beings. Um, and there's been so much, I don't know how to say it, overdone media about 9, 11, 10 years later, it's as if we're re-traumatizing ourselves somehow, quite honestly. And it's not that it wasn't a tragedy um, for the people that were killed and people who lost family members and things that were extremely painful. But I'm going to name some things that just, you know, and you know these. I almost don't need to tell you, but just to be honorable about it. So after... Um, the death of those 3,000 people. Lorca writes, our sons and daughters disappeared into the vaulted darkness. Um, we began a war that's the longest war in our history. Um, and we also started our terror alerts. So you could go to the airport in Boise or Tuscaloosa or something, and there would be a big sign as you came in, terror alert, orange level, you know, and we've done that to ourselves, as if we took the terror inside. And in the 3,000 people who died, um, there are now more than 6,000 soldiers and, and people working for the military who died um, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and 100,000 with serious injuries and somewhere between half a million and a million Iraqis and Afghanis who have died, and two or three million wounded, and a million veterans who are coming back. That's actually why I wanted to talk about this in some way. One million people who were there in the 
theater of war um, who are returning at a cost of somewhere estimated when you count all the long-term costs of caring for people coming back three to five trillion dollars um, make fortress America let's have perpetual war on terror um, and as the Buddha said, in war, no one is a victor. No one. Um, could it have been different? Could we have had an international, a very powerful international police action against a criminal terrorist act? The world was so um, much in sympathy worldwide for us. Um, and um, so I'm just naming those things because I watch all this and, and it made me sad, not just for what happened, of course, and the losses, but also for somehow the, the loss of our way, that somehow we left certain values that really matter to us behind in the, in the kind of drumbeat that rolls up to having a war. Um, Iraq wasn't even really involved, though let's have a big war there as well. Um, and we carry it. We all carry it. It's a, the, the cost of it. Um, but there's another way. When I lived in a forest monastery in Southeast Asia, where I had my training with Ajahn Chah especially, um, it was during the time of the um, American-Vietnam War, um, and some of the branches of the monastery were close enough to the border of Cambodia and Laos, we were relatively close, that you'd watch planes take off, you could see flashes of bombs at night. Um, and I remember a group of friends coming to stay, Westerners, who were Quakers that had volunteered to go and work during the war in Vietnam for peace in the war zone. Um, and they got to the monastery and they were berating me and some other friends that they'd met there and saying, there's a war going on, you have to go out there and do something about it. You know, what are you doing sitting around meditating on your navel, basically, when people are dying? Um, and they had a pretty good case to make, I have to say. But something else happened. They came for about a week or so. Um, and they talked to Ajahn Chah, the teacher. Um, and he talked to them about stopping the war. He said, we human beings are constantly in combat at war to escape the fact of being so limited by so many circumstances we cannot control. But instead of escaping, we continue to create suffering, waging war with evil, waging war with good, waging war with what's too small or too big, waging war with what's too short or too long or right or wrong, courageously carrying on the battle. And he looked at them and he said, can you step out of the battle? And what happened over the week or ten days that they were there is that they began to realize that the monastery was a sanctuary in the midst of a crazy time that not many miles over the border in Cambodia, which we started to bomb in 1969, and the war started there, people were um, tearing off parts of their own temples to sell on the black market to get money for food or to escape 
the, the terror that was happening, um, or in Laos or Vietnam, terrible things that were happening, um, and people go, people do terrible things in those times. But here was a place as if to say, wars come and go, human beings do some very um, destructive and terrible things, and we're going to demonstrate with our bodies that there's another way. And you'd walk the paths and feel how peaceful it was. The monks and nuns would be out sweeping the paths. And if you dropped your watch or your wallet there, someone would take it up and bring it and put it on the altar and ask around who lost something. There was nothing that was ever taken. And if there was any difficulty, people would come and say, how can we help you? And it was as if for my friends who came from Vietnam, um, from their, they'd been working there for a year or two to start with, it was as if their soul got restored because they remembered in their being what was possible for us as humans. And we need that. Um, first of all, we need to turn off the news. Mostly there's not a lot on it that's going to help you. And I don't mean not to be engaged or involved politically or things that matter to you, but my own experience is going away for three months on a trip to the temples of Asia or on retreat or something, coming back and turn on news, it's the same news. There's like two things that have happened, maybe you know, somebody died or there was an earthquake, but mostly it's the same thing. You know what I'm saying? Turn it off, put on Mozart, you know, or something better. Um, so you go in the forest monastery and you hear the temple bells and they ring this song and there's a little, a, a, there was a forest pond, a pool there. And Ajahn Chah said, make your heart and mind still like the pool in the forest, and then all kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come and drink at the pool. And you'll learn all these beautiful things about life because you become still. Make yourself like the temple. So stopping the war, where that, where that begins, and of course it begins with us. Um, and yet when we're able to do it, in some way, then we carry that beauty, that courage, that understanding for everybody else around. So Thich Nhat Hanh said in his, you know, very simple way, he said, when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained calm and centered, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone to survive. And so, of course, you know who that one person is. As Miss Piggy would say, moi, you know. So, Loss happens, betrayal happens, um, war happens, pain happens. Um, the question is, how do we respond? What can we learn for, from this? Who are we as human beings? What is our potential and possibility? And what does it mean to be at peace? Does peace mean there's no conflict? Anybody not have conflict? Raise your hand. I'm going to meet you. So we come and we sit in meditation, and already we have conflict. We do. 
because, as Whitman said, I am large, I contain multitudes. And one part of you says, let's be peaceful and sense the breath and open to the body and rest in the space of awareness. And another part says, yeah, but tomorrow you've got that business meeting and beside that the stock market dropped a bunch today and maybe you should sell that, you know, stock that you bought. And not only that, you know, that person said that to you and you've got to call them back and pretty soon your mind is just doing wild things and you say, please, could you quiet down? Does it listen? No. Exactly. You know? And then you start judging yourself. See, you're no good at this meditation stuff. Or maybe you should try, maybe the Tibetans are better, you know, or the Sufis or something. You know, they dance. That'd be easier than just sitting and being with your own frustration and anger or you're sleeping, you know, or you're restless and this is never working. And so what do you do with all that? It's your own life. And you sit and you learn to become the space of awareness that says, ah, oh, the judging mind, thank you for your opinion. Yeah, right, you know who that is in there. Thank you for your view, but you don't have to believe it. Sadness comes, oh, this is the tears. Um, when we get quiet, the heart speaks to us. And whatever we carry that's unfinished rises up, it wants to be known. Whether it's longing or love that's never been expressed, or fears, or grief that we haven't let ourselves touch. My friend Malidomo Somme, who's a West African shaman and medicine man, when he first came here, he said, your streets are full of the ungrieved dead. He said that the shamans taught him to see both the beings who were visible and the ones who weren't so visible. And he said, all those people who died in your old age homes and your ICUs with nobody attending them but the nurses and the machines and, you know, or homeless people, he said, you, you live in a culture that doesn't know how to grieve so well. And so they're still here with you. And whether you take that literally or metaphorically, you know there's a certain truth in it. So we take our seat as the Buddha halfway between heaven and earth, as the Buddha of compassion and wisdom, understanding, in the midst of judgment and confusion and fear and longing and love and possibility and connectedness and all the things that make up what Oscar Wilde said, called the tainted glory of our humanity. And in taking our seat, we become that forest pool. We don't have to struggle against it and wage war. I don't like this and stop judging. You're judging too much. I hate that judging mind. You judge yourself all the time. <laughs> but what's that, right? Thank you for your opinion. That's all, you know. So the story that I tell often on day longs especially is of a young man who was um, an army officer Sure, I hope I didn't tell this last week. An army officer, you never know, I have so many stories, who, who, uh, who um, had a problem with his temper and got angry very easily. Um, and so his senior officer remanded him to an eight-week mindfulness training course to deal with his anger. Um, and he went for a number of weeks, and then on his way home after about six weeks, he was on stopped in the grocery store, filled his cart with stuff, and it was crowded, it was late, got in line, lots of people, and the woman in front of him was in the wrong line. 
She had only one item. She's supposed to be in the express line. He was a military trained person who had ideas about how you were supposed to do things properly. And he started to get irritated. She had a little baby in her arm and, and has, she got up to the clerk. They started cooing and talking about the baby. And he started to get more irritated. There's a long line, lady, you know. And then she handed the baby to the checkout clerk. This sent him over the edge, uh, really upset, and, you know. And as his anger rose, because he'd been practicing mindfulness of his breath and body, he could feel the arising of it, <sighs> sense it in his body. So he took some breaths and kind of softened and realized that he didn't have to do that to himself, basically, because that's what we do. So by the time he got up there, he kind of looked again. He said, it was kind of a cute kid. So he said, well, that was a cute little boy you were talking about. She said, oh, do you like him? He's my baby. She said, you see, my husband was killed in uh, Iraq last year, um, so I have to work now. And my mom takes care of my boy. She tries to bring him in once a day so I can see him. Um, we're so quick to judge other people. And we're so quick in the same way to judge ourselves. And so to stop the war, what it means to be at peace is to begin to take a breath in this life and see, yes, there are things that aren't going the way we want them to, or worse, there are some things that are really bad in different ways. Um, but how do we respond? How do we respond individually? What are we not at peace with in ourselves? in our hearts or in our bodies? Are we at peace with our body? Can we care for it or are we at war with it in some way? How about, you know, family members or neighbors or people of other religious or political views? Uh, from the Buddha, he writes, the passage. Look how he abused me, beat me, threw me down, robbed me, perpetuate these thoughts and live in hate. Look how he abused me, beat me, threw me down, robbed me, abandon these thoughts and live in love. In this world, hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. So, how do we respond to the things that are difficult or to the injustices that happen to us? And it's not that you can't stand up for justice. You need to for yourself and others. But I remember this woman coming to work with me who was in the middle of a very painful divorce and married to or her husband, soon-to-be ex-husband, um, was really angry, um, had a lot of money, hired the lawyers that he felt were the kind of toughest possible that he could. And she was losing, you know, maybe going to lose custody of her children, certainly lost money, all, almost everything, um, and struggled horribly. And then one day she came to see me and she said, I will not bestow a legacy of bitterness upon my children. I simply will not hate him and I will not speak ill of him and I will not pass along the bitterness to another generation. And that really becomes our, our choice. 
Martin Luther King, he says, we will match, and this was after the bombings of the church, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws. So here's the standing up for justice part. But we will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your conscience that we will win your freedom as well. So this is a different way of responding, isn't it? I mean, and we all know this in some very deep way, whether it's individually or as a society. Maybe a response is to dance, to eat a tangerine and really taste it, to go walk in the sunset by the beach, turn off CNN, Fox News, whatever you watch, MSNBC, and rest in the unbearable beauty and the ocean of tears of humanity. Praise, blame, gain, loss. This is our human life. Somehow step back and sense the mystery that you are alive, that we're all born and alive. And we look for security. I mean, a lot of this is around security. and We're all trying to be secure, especially because the economic times are so difficult and so forth. And yet, we want control, right? You don't even control your own mind very well, right? And you want control. <laughs> Tell it to do. You don't control your feelings. I don't want to feel this. Too bad. It feels it. It thinks it, right? I remember being in a men's retreat teaching with my colleague Robert Hall here some years ago, and a person raised their hand in the circle and said, I don't feel completely safe here in this group. We were talking in a very open way. And, okay, Robert was leading that circle. I said, I wonder what he's going to say. You know, like, what would make you feel safe? That's sort of the nice mommy answer, um, which I've given many times. And Robert looked up and he said, you're not. And no one ever is completely safe. Um, we can be respectful here, but safety is an illusion. And the whole group just dropped to a different level. He said, so knowing this is true, then how will we be with one another? Because we are vulnerable. And the passage I read from Helen Keller over and over where she writes, security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do children as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. So it's called the wisdom of uncertainty, that we don't know and we are vulnerable. This is true. And how then will we live? With what values will we guide our life, even in difficult times, whether they're externally difficult, talk about, or whether they're the personal difficulties that we meet. And that's in part why people do a meditation practice. Partly it's training to find the space of some balance so that when fear comes you can say, oh, I know this fear, I've worked with fear 50 times already, 100 times, I'm not so afraid, I know you, you befriend your fear or your loneliness instead 
if you're always lonely or bored, you know, the minute you get lonely, you open the refrigerator because you can't tolerate it, you know, or you turn on the TV, you can't be with yourself. But if you sit in an honorable way and you take your seat in the midst of this amazing human incarnation and open your heart and your mind, there comes a, a kind of stillness or inner freedom, not because things go away or change, but because you can bow to them and say, yes, this is part of humanity, and here I am, here we are, the witness to it all. And you become the Buddha with the heart of compassion that says, yes, this is us. And then you respond rather than being entangled and so fearful. So what matters? What are the heart's values when things are difficult? The Sufis put it this way, overcome any bitterness because you were not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who holds the pain of the world in her heart, you are each endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are sharing in the pain of the world, and whether you turn the TV on or not, you know it. You know the environmental destruction, the continuing racism and warfare, the insanity of it. You feel it. And you are called upon to meet it in compassion instead of self-pity. Your measure, overcome any bitterness because you were not up to the magnitude of what was entrusted to you. So we have these different levels of response and, you know, in modern, modern neuroscience in the most crude way, there's sort of the survival brain, right? That, um, that you get, something happens, a car comes around the corner and you jump back immediately. You don't even think about it, you know? And, and that can get triggered, and it did get triggered, certainly in 9-11, it gets triggered in all kinds of ways with us. Um, and it gets, seems to get triggered in almost everybody. Even the Dalai Lama will say once in a while, yeah, this thing, it made me really angry, or I got angry, but then I thought, what's the use? And I let it go. I remember actually um, playing a, um, a soccer game up in the mountains in the, at, uh, with my family at Camp Mather, the San Francisco city camp some years ago, and the guests would play against the staff. And the staff were young and pretty good. And I used to play soccer, and I can run pretty fast, and I was quite good at getting the ball away from people. Once I got it, I didn't know what to do with it, but I could get it away. So I, I was running, I would run pretty fast, and I was getting the ball away from these couple guys who were on my side, sort of pleased with myself and kicking it wherever I could. Um, but anyway, they started to get upset this particularly is one guy because I was being able to do that. And so I got the ball away, and after the ball was gone, he, he, he kind of hit me and tripped me, so I fell deliberately. Um, and the next time the ball came and we were, and I got it away from him some, he started to do that again, and without any thought, I whacked him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was doing it to me, and I, I, it was just instinctive. It was like, okay, you know, you want to do that? And my family was sitting there and watching Mr. Buddhist teacher, you know, <laughs> meditation, whatever. There wasn't, there was like, there was no window of opportunity of not... So that's the survival brain, and we all know it, okay? And it operates in certain moments, and it protects us. It's really a protection. And then there's sort of the middle brain, limbic brain, all the emotions and anger and revenge. And I didn't feel that. I was like, oh, wow, look at that. That's interesting. But, but you can. All that got activated in America, 9-11. We've got to take revenge. Oh, my God, revenge. Look what happened. Look what happened. 
um, and all the fears, all the juices going, get going. And then, you know, it finally gets up to the cortex and the rational mind, but Justice, Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas said, um, at the Supreme Court level where I work, 90% of the decisions are made on an emotional basis. The other 10% is the rationality we use to defend those decisions. And you know it's true. But beyond this survival brain, limbic brain, even our rational mind, there is a wise heart. You know, and there are different languages for it. There's conscience. There's the one who knows, is the language my teacher used. There's the place where when we take a breath and let ourselves, as the Buddha said to his son, he said, make yourself like the sky where things appear and disappear and you can be spacious with them, not in battle with them. Make yourself like the earth and people pour beautiful things and seeds in the earth and they pour garbage on the earth and the earth receives and recycles it all. Make yourself spacious like this so that you're not afraid of life. Um, We can do this. We can take a breath. We can sit, we can learn somehow to come back, even though those, well, those things get triggered in us sometimes, and say, what, what really matters? What is the value that I want to live from? How do I want to respond? What is real courage? Let me ask you. It says in the Bhagavad Gita, if you want to see the brave, brave, look to those who can forgive. If you want to see the heroic, look to those who can return Love for hatred. So what does courage mean? And the beautiful thing is like that army officer, this can be trained, this can be learned or reminded. It really is what we know, that first poem of the child that smelled like peace. It's there in us. It's there in every one of us. And we can be reminded and we can practice, again from the Buddha, Others will be cruel, we shall not be cruel, this, thus we should incline the mind. Others will kill, we shall abstain from killing, thus we incline the mind. Others will speak falsehoods, we will tell the truth, thus we incline the mind. Others will be envious or avarice, or avaricious, we shall not be, thus will incline the mind. Others will be arrogant. We shall not be, thus we incline the mind. We cultivate or turn the heart or the mind in the direction of our dignity, our nobility, our well-being and the well-being of others. And this is what's possible for human beings. And as the Buddha said, if it were not possible to liberate the heart, your heart, from being caught in fear and confusion and greed and hatred and so forth, if it were not possible, I wouldn't teach you to do it. But just because it is possible, there are the teachings in every great tradition to step out of what's called the small self, the body of fear, and remember your courage, remember your dignity, remember your love. Remember a freedom that cannot be taken from you. When Nelson Mandela walked out of Robben Island Prison, as I like to talk about, after 27 years, with such magnanimity and graciousness and forgiveness and so forth, they can put your body in prison, but they cannot imprison your spirit. 
And this fundamental freedom is your birthright, is your Buddha nature. Now the Buddhist teaching also says, to be wise you have to look at causes and conditions, what makes things happen. So if we look at the political causes for suffering, we can look at greed and colonialism in the Middle East and the greed for oil and all of the kind of strategic minerals and racism and a tremendous disrespect that a lot of people around the world have felt for their cultures from the West and injustice and the support of dictators that have fallen not from our doing, fortunately, but from the doing of the people in those countries and despair and poverty and all those things that make people um, that make people frightened and then bring them to at least go along with hate, if not hate. And we know this. Um, but there are other causes and conditions. The causes and conditions to transform ourselves and others are first of all respect. I'll tell this little story that I like to tell. So a, a young boy went out with his family to a restaurant to get um, evening dinner and the waitress was going around and taking orders and uh, she got to him and she said, what would you like? And he said, I'd like a hot dog and root beer, please. And his mother said, he'll have the um, meatloaf, uh, mashed potatoes, carrots and milk. She took the rest of the orders and as she left the table, she turned back to him and said, do you want uh, ketchup or mustard on your hot dog? <laughs> and he looked up quite happily and he said, you know, she thinks I'm real. <laughs> there is some way that every being wants respect. Your children want respect. Your parents want respect. Your employees want respect. Your boss wants respect. Um, People in other countries, people who are different than you, which is everybody, by the way, just in case you hadn't noticed, they want respect. <laughs> your, the animals, the garden that you plant wants your respect. Respect is this beautiful relationship to the way things are. And out of this respect, um, things get transformed. When people feel respected, and again, you can translate it politically, into countries in the world. Because we, you know, we have our enemy du jour, as I talk about. Well, it was the communists, and, or it's the immigrants, or it's the Muslims, or it's the, you know, Pakistan. Now, give me a break. You know, we, it, it sort of fill in the blank. Everybody wants respect. So respect is one of the conditions. Another is honesty and truth-telling. The truth and reconciliation process in South Africa was critical for its healing, that somebody would be willing to tell the truth. And in the temples and monasteries, we had a, 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 re a ritual, Pavarana, regularly, where the abbots and the senior monks would get down and sit on the floor, and nuns would sit down on the floor with everybody equally and say, all right, how have we been treating one another? Is there something that we need to apologize or atone for? Um, we need to do this regularly so that our community can be clear. And people would tell what was the truth, what had happened. Hannah Arendt 
she writes. Let me see if I can find this. Um, the holes of denial do not exist. Nothing human is created so perfectly. There are simply too many people in the world to make oblivion possible, even for the tragedies that want to be hidden by some. One person will always be left alive to resist and tell the story. And the lessons of this is that under conditions of war and terror, most people will comply with the madness, but some people will not. Humanly speaking, no more is required and no more can reasonably be asked for this planet to be re remain a place fit for human habitation. And of course she wrote about some of the great tragedies in World War II and so forth, the Holocaust. Um, but the telling of the truth. So in the time of Gorbachev and the Soviet Union's collapse, um, the newspaper Pravda, which was the great organ of the Soviet state, um, announced the cancellation of final examinations in history and politics for 53 million Russian students because of the lies that had been passed on from generation to generation about Stalin and Lenin and what happened in the name of the state to which, as it wrote, we can no longer look our children in the eye. And so we will cancel our exams until we get our history honest. Kind of an amazing thing that they did. So there's something about being willing to see what's true in ourselves, painful and beautiful, to see what's true outside, and to be able to speak, to be witness for the truth. Respect, truth-telling, and then healing of trauma. In some way, each of us carries that measure of sorrows. Each of us carries a certain amount of trauma as well. We do in this life. And if we don't tend to it, one of the beautiful things that can happen in meditation is that there's a healing, a deep healing that takes place when we bring compassion and loving kindness and tenderness to our body, to the wounds, to the places that are the most hurt in us. Then they start to open. It's like the garden. It's like watering and things start to renew themselves. My teacher Gosananda, who was the Gandhi of Cambodia, led peace walks back from the refugee camps on the border of Thailand. Almost two million Cambodians were killed in their genocide. And he said, you can't go back to your villages. We can't put you on buses and just plop you back there um, because it won't be your place anymore with the burning of the temples and the destruction of your homes and the killing of elders. You'll remember all of that. We have to reclaim your land. And so he walked for 15 years leading groups of people on foot, chanting loving-kindness, may all beings be happy, may they be peaceful, hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed, over and over again. He walked people back to their village and he said, we will reclaim the land one step at a time. And there would be these people in a long line, hundreds of them, walking back to the village with him in the front with a bell or a drum and other monks with him. And soldiers would come out of the woods and put their guns down at their feet and weep because they didn't really want to be in battle. 
when I was in Palestine and Israel, it was so obvious that the peoples there have been traumatized. The Palestinians have been traumatized, the Israelis have been traumatized, and because of it, the littlest thing triggers it up and it starts all again because there hasn't been any healing. And a friend of mine who's very good at this has been doing Peter Levine's somatic experience trauma work, which is brilliant work. Um, she's been working with the Israeli and Palestinian leadership on trauma clearing, but especially with the journalists there. Because if you're a journalist and you go and cover a suicide bombing, or you go and cover the shooting of Palestinian you know, children who are throwing stones and so forth, it's, it affects you in your heart, and it's terrible. And then the, if you don't digest it, if you don't release it, then the next time a little thing happens, you're triggered and everything you write is on alarm and you can't stop that alarm. And so the cycle of news starts to support the cycle of terror because people don't know how to heal from trauma. Um, and in the... in the way that I've had periodically to work with vets coming back, um, certain retreats that I've been part of, and so forth. Um, they need to tell their stories. You know, they, didn't need, they don't need a hero's welcome, you know, with yellow ribbons and that bullshit. They don't, because that's not how they feel. How they feel, I and mean, these are 18, 19, 20-year-olds who are put into a theater of war where the rules of engagement are such that you don't know who the enemy is. And so you're on alert for the entire year or two. Anybody could be a suicide bomber, you know, and then they come back and the stories that they dare not tell, I mean, they'll say, you know, I can't tell you what I saw. And I can't tell you what I did. You know, I was given orders to shoot that 12-year-old boy because we thought he was, you know, a suicide bomber. I, I shot at this old man who was coming because he didn't stop at the checkpoint and it turned out he was deaf. Everybody was screaming afterward, couldn't you tell he was deaf? And they just stand and weep because they carry this one million people coming back which is really why I wanted to talk about this tonight as much as anything. Because the rest of this stuff you know, you do. You know, and, and, and in some of these retreats, men's retreats that I've been a part of, we learn these beautiful old songs, Tibetan chants, Om Mani Padmi Hung, African songs, um, songs from other cultures. Um, and... Uh, I remember some of the times these men would stand up and speak and weep, tell their stories. And then the whole room would stand up and sing to them. And sing some very simple song, what you get a hundred or two hundred men together. And it was as if we were welcoming them back and singing them into their bodies after they voiced the terrible things that they didn't know what to do with. How do we bring warriors back? Do we even know in this culture? Or how do we bring 
ourselves back alive. So there's respect, truth-telling, trauma-healing, and some standing up for justice. Um, As Booker T. Washington said, don't ever let them pull you down so low as to hate them. Some sensing in yourself that whether it's in difficult times politically or difficult times in your community, that there is a dignity in you that you reclaim every time you take your breath and take your seat as the Buddha. That there is a justice in you, a longing for justice that you can stand up for. Not in my name. You can refuse to be enemies. I will not make a people my enemies. There's another way, and we know this, and there's one strength is the people who aren't afraid to kill. And the only force that can match it is those who aren't afraid to love. Because that's the force that lets, you know, mothers pick cars up off of kids, um, do impossible things. Um, there's really no other, no other match for it. And of course, true love is not for the faint-hearted. You know, again, when I was in Palestine and Israel, um, on that long wall that is sort of looks like the wall to a prison, guard towers, this huge security wall that unfortunately has gone way into the West Bank and taken olive groves and taken a lot of land from the, from the Palestinian territory. Um, on the backside there's all this graffiti, um, but it's great graffiti. There's, a, there's paintings of olive groves by the kids saying, you can cut down our olive grove, but we still see it. And there's this painting I hold up sometimes. Um, this is 15 feet high. It's a peace dove. You can see a little car down there in the corner. And it's a peace dove on this wall wearing a, a flak jacket, a bulletproof, bulletproof vest, <laughs> as if to say, all right, you know, times are tough here. You might shoot at me, but I'm here and I'm not going away. So there is another way. And in the the extent that our society has lost its way, where we spend more on prisons than we do on our universities, come on. Where we spend more on the military than we do in the health and well-being, not only of our children, we could feed and clothe and uh, we could feed every hungry person in the world. And with a portion of what we spend on military. Um, But sometimes, I'm really hopeful, actually, sometimes it's through our great mistakes that we learn. And even the most hawkish kind of consciousness, I think, is getting the notion that there are limits to our military power. You know, we can't just go and make a war and have it work, it turns out. And most people don't want to go to war anymore. And we didn't have a draft, so it was sort of on TV, and you know nobody was asked to sacrifice except the four trillion dollars of your children's education and the health care and all of that. But it wasn't explicit. Um, but we're not a nation that wants to go to war right now. We don't, because we see the suffering and the limitations of it, 
and that war is a failure of imagination. You know, it took a long time to do away with slavery on this earth. And now there still is slavery in some places, but it's at least publicly agreed that it's an abomination. War is an obscenity. And it's about time that we found some other way to solve conflict. And we can feel it. We really know it. So there's a lot of hope. I saw it in Palestine and Israel, the former combatants for peace and the bereaved mothers from both sides that would get together. And the teenagers, the Palestinian Israeli teens and the silent walkers that do this meditation between the communities and the people who are doing healing on both sides of the border and planting seeds. So this is really, this isn't 9-11, this is 9-12. This is beginner's mind, which of course is every day at breakfast, you know, you get to start over again. Um, And so my friend Dina Metzger, who's a poet, she writes, Give me everything mangled and bruised, and I will make a light of it to make you weep. And we will have rain, and we will begin again. Or T.S. Eliot speaks of turning shadow into translucent beauty. Um, We've learned things, and sometimes we learn the hard way, and there's a lot of suffering because of it, collectively or personally. Um, We are where we are, and it is now time, in your place, in your remarkable, beautiful life, to find your dance and your voice and your dignity and offer it and carry it, because that's what the world needs. And this country, you know, the richest nation on earth, we can feed and educate all our children and the children of the world. We can care for the vulnerable. We can stand up for justice. We have this possibility. We still can do this, and we will. We will in our way. We will as we do it together. We can respond with wisdom. So, question for you. as you reflect on this, because this is taking the stillness, the still forest pool of meditation and reflecting on who we are as humans. My question is, what have you learned in this past decade? You know, what do you wish you could learn or embody? What do you wish to carry at this point? What seeds do you want to plant? And I don't usually do this, but I will tonight. I want to ask you, we have time, we've got another 15 minutes or so. I want to ask you to take five, six, seven minutes, we'll see, and turn to one or two people near you in a minute. Do a moment's reflection first. And then talk about what you want to carry at this point, what you wish to bring forth on this earth, what you've learned, so you hear from one another. And also by your, by your allowing the words to come from your lips that speak from your heart, they also become more potent, more powerful, more alive. You know that because you've said them. Oh, hmm. And it's a beautiful thing. 
So, and I know, you know, when I have people talk to each other on Monday night, a lot of people love it. You get to meet some, and some people come in and they complain and say, listen, I work in the complaint department at Nordstrom's. The last thing I want, I come here to be peaceful. I don't want to talk to anybody, right? I'm an ICU nurse and I just need to be peaceful. But tonight, I ask your indulgence. Take five, six, seven minutes, turn to one, two people, and have a little conversation about what you want to carry from your spirit at this time, what you've learned. Then we'll come back together. Go ahead.
one more minute, finish up. So finish up and turn back. So let's do a little chant just to bring our energy back together as you finish. There is a, a Buddhist text called the text of complete and perfect wisdom and all these verses that are, you know, outlining the dimensions of wisdom. But it's summed up in one syllable, um, the seed syllable, ah which is considered the sound in Sanskrit, the first sound in life and the last sound. But most importantly, it's the sound of opening or letting go. So let's just sing ah for a second. Um, you can feel all, you know, what was touched, what you said to another person, what you heard from them, what you carry. And then we'll just make this sound ah to kind of let all of that energy be present and open. And then we'll sit for a minute or two. And I have a few more things to say and we'll finish. But let the ah uh, kind of bring us back a little bit. Ah, uh, and harmony, ah, ah, ah,
The stillness is beautiful. Just to come together as humans and be quiet and listen. It's very special and precious. Also, you seem somewhat animated as you spoke. How was that? Was that okay? To give voice to that, to remember or sense what matters. So the temple is both. It's like breathing in and breathing out, coming to quiet the mind and open the heart and center yourself in the midst of everything that's here for you. And then when you're ready, getting up and offering yourself to the world. Stop thinking the global crisis is all there is. Realize that for every ongoing war and religious outrage and environmental devastation, there are a thousand counterbalancing acts of staggering generosity and humanity and art and beauty and virtue happening all over the world right now on a breathtaking scale from flower box to cathedral. Resist the temptation to drown in fatalism to shake your head and sigh and just throw in the karmic towel and realize this is the perfect moment to envision a re-enchantment of the world. To change the energy, to step right up and crank up your personal volume right when it seems dark or bitter, offensive, acrimonious, conflicted, bilious, here's your opening. Remember mystery and finally believe in the seeds that you plant. Believe you're part of a groundswell Believe you're part of the broad goodness of humanity, a resistance that seems small in you, but is actually this very, very large, impending transformation, the beginning of something important and potent and genuine and unstoppable. That's from Mark Morford. So, yes, we carry the burdens of this world and they're difficult, they're not easy. And we also carry amazing possibility. Aung San Suu Kyi and Nelson Mandela in Burma and South Africa and you in America in your own way, your own voice, your dignity, your sense of justice, which is there. So I'll read you a poem and then we'll go out into the well, it feels like the beginning of autumn, doesn't it? Not, not quite the number yet, but it's the seasons, you can feel them turning. And you may know this poem, it's still worth listening to from Naomi Shihab Nye, the Palestinian poet, called Wandering Around an Albuquerque Airport Terminal. <laughs> After learning my flight was detained four hours, I heard the announcement If anyone in the vicinity of gate 4A understands Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days. But gate 4A was my own gate, so I went. An older woman in full traditional Palestinian dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumpled to the floor, wailing loudly, Help, said the flight service person. Talk to her. What's her problem? We told her the flight was going to be four hours late, and she did this. I put my arm around her, spoke haltingly. The minute she heard any words she knew, however poorly spoken, she stopped crying. She thought her flight had been canceled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for some major medical treatment the following day. I said, no, we're fine. You'll get there just late. Who's picking you up? Let's call him and tell him. We called her son. 
I spoke with him in English. I told him I'd stay with his mother till we got on the plane and would ride next to her. Southwest, right? <laughs> she talked to him. <laughs> then we called her other sons just for the fun of it. Then we called my dad and he and she spoke for a while in Arabic and found out, of course, they had 10 shared friends. <laughs> and then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her? <clears throat> this all took about two hours. She was laughing a lot by then, telling her life, answering questions. <clears throat> she had pulled out a sack of homemade mamul cookies, little powdered, sugary, crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts out of her bag and was offering them to all the people at the gate. To my amazement, not a single person declined one. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the traveler from California, the lovely woman from Laredo, <clears throat> we were all covered with the same powdered sugar and smiling. <clears throat> there are no better cookies. And then the airline broke out free beverages and flight attendants running around serving us all, and they were covered with powdered sugar too. <clears throat> and then I noticed my new best friend, we were holding hands by now, had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal thing with green furry leaves. <clears throat> Such an old country traveling tradition, always carry a plant. Always stay rooted somewhere. And I looked around that gate of late and weary ones and thought, this is the world I want to live in, the shared world. <clears throat> Not a single person in this gate, once the crying of confusion stopped, had seemed apprehensive about any other person. They all took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those people. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. So just sit quietly for a moment. and carry your beautiful spirit, your heart's wisdom, your sense of dignity and respect, what gifts you have to offer to the world with you. Thank you and good night. Thank you for your kind attention, for your generosity, all those good things. <clears throat>